Attention all filmmakers. You have short films or full features without a district. Come to www.fhffsd.org. That is the fantastic horror film festival. So hurry up. Submit now. Do you need key art poster for your horror project? Do you have a limited budget and about to hit the festival circuit? Are you looking for distribution and need visual art to help the process? Well, you're in luck. Go to www.posterlabworks.com and contact them for more information. They'll work with your budget and provide you some great key art. If you mention Gruesome Herzog when you contact them, they will include art for matching postcards and along with the poster. Contact them now. Hello everyone, this is Scott Geider. My very special co-host is Joanne Thomas, the co-founder of the Fantastic Horror Film Festival. And our special guest is a very dear friend of mine, a sweetheart. Her name is Caroline Williams. Caroline, how are you? Oh, Scott, you're, that's such a sweet and lovely introduction. If only you knew what I was wearing right now. <laughs> My headset just went funky there for a second. What did you say again? I'm wearing my iPad and a giant cup of coffee. And a there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Caroline. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. She's going to start the show off with her very normal spunk. So, Joanne, take it Go away. for it, Joe. <laughs> well, hello, Caroline. How are you doing? Hello, dear. Um... Since it's the holiday season, I have a question for you regarding bringing to life the Dr. Seuss classic. Uh, the, how the Grinch, how stole, the Grinch Christmas. stole Christmas. <laughs> how, how much fun was that back when you did that? Well, the, it, you know, on the one hand, it was a great deal of fun because of the, just the, the creative challenge of working on green screen. Which I'd never done before. But that, but it, but the thing about green screen, it's sort of an empty, you're just, it, it's just a big green screen. And, uh, all I had to work with was my co-actor in my scenes and, um, and the director who was on a remote from his station in a trailer, uh, so he could see the action with the green screen overlay, uh, matting. And so I never got to really see Ron until he came out to say, hey, great day's work, thanks so much. So it was a very disembodied and strange thing, but it was such a unique and interesting challenge that I was eager to take it on. And because you have to invent the entire world of Whoville and the Grinch in your mind. And right. You know, talking to the Grinch, looking at the Grinch, he's a uh, he's a laser point on uh, various places on the stage. So everything had to be invented in your mind and in my mind, and, and which is an enormously freeing, very wonderful experience because it's so childlike. And given the subject matter that it's Dr. Seuss and it's the world of children anyway, it was so delicious to tap into that. And have that opportunity. It was it was a, a, a marvelous experience, challenging and, and unique and different. You had a little children back in back in that back in two thousand. Uh, I'm assuming that your children were allowed to see it on set and, and have a good time with. Oh with it. yes, I, there was one particular day that was devoted strictly to bringing the boys. At the time, my older son, um, I think he was about he was about four or five, four years old. 
And my younger son was still so young that we just left him at home because these sets were so spectacular. Bo Welch was the um, uh, art director and set design. And they were so fantastic, uh, so beautifully sculpted and so utterly unique for a little child to walk into this space. It was truly a, a marvelous, marvelous experience to see my son be inside the book, so to speak. And, right. of course, my children were raised with Dr. Seuss books. They're, your, they're the primary books everywhere <coughs> for the child. We had the entire library. Sure. And uh, to nice. see my son running and jumping and playing, and there was a slide structure inside. And all the other people who worked on the show were able to bring their children as well. That's so it cool. was like a bring your child That's to cool work experience. day. And to see it through his eyes was so marvelous. Now you care less, right? <laughs> well, now it's just feeding them. I mean, that, that's the challenge. They want to eat 24 hours a day. And I'm a good cook, and I cook a lot of food. But it is gone in a day. I made two dozen biscuits <laughs> last night. Two dozen. And they're big. Oh, my God. They're the size of your palm. And they're cream biscuits. <laughs> so it's an especially fantastic wow. biscuit. <laughs> That you've got to experience and very simple to make. I made two dozen of those biscuits and there's only six left. <laughs> it's morning. <laughs> I gotta tell you, you can't keep them fed. You just can't. <laughs> you know, four fish, two roast chickens, a side of beef, and that's breakfast. <laughs> a side of beef that's I and milk. A gallon of milk a day. Holy shit. I buy a gallon of milk the night before. By the end of the day, there's maybe an inch and a half of milk in the bottom. Well, it's very healthy, right? I guess, huh? I'm telling you, they're they're growing boys. My 18 year old is six foot four, 230 wow. pounds. My 15 year old has just popped up to about five eight or five nine. He's taller than me. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> and then add my husband, who's also six foot four and a half. Holy hell! At about two hundred pounds, I mean it's a it's a it's a heavy. That's where my money goes. I'd love to be lolling around in diamonds and furs. You are known um, in the horror genre. Uh, everybody remembers you, even still today. But Chainsaw Massacre Part Two in '86 was one of these iconic films that they they kind of took a different spin from the original to a more of a comedy. What was your experience like with Dennis Hopper? And even even as of today, I'm sure people always come to you and say, ask you questions about Chainsaw Massacre 2, correct? Oh, always, because it's the movie that I'm most identified with. Um, it was a huge departure from the first film. Uh, Toby and Carson were the creators of it. So you had the original creative mind behind the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was a seminal film. Uh, it's in the Library of Congress. It's one of the top 100 films, uh, according to AFI. Um, it did change the, the, the look, the temperature, the feel, the storylines forever for horror films. And then Toby took his original film and literally turned it inside out. He turned it into a parody and a satire, his own original first film, which mm. was an incredibly gutsy move. Right. And uh, he got to it before anybody else could, which was smart. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he managed to grab Dennis Hopper, Dennis had been, his career had been on a very sharp slide because of his drug use. Um, his reputation uh, for being a, a very uncertain player at best, and uh, people literally felt like he had lost his mind. 
because of his drug use. Um, when I met him, he was nearly two years sober. Nothing could have been further from the truth. The man had experienced a creative rebirth um, that was a really inspiring thing to participate in and be a part of. He was grateful for that job. Uh, he wanted to work his way back into the good graces of the film industry. Before he came to us, he had done Blue Velvet, which was also edgy, experimental, out there, weird. All the adjectives that show business executives had for Blue Velvet and David Lynch, they also had for Toby Hooper and, and Chainsaw Massacre too. Dennis was biting off big chunks of risk taking these roles, but he wanted to reestablish himself as an original creative actor. Right. You can't have the wealth of experience and the encyclopedic experience of working with so many incredible directors, George Stevens, Nick Ray, you know, the list goes on and on. He, he, he worked with so many um, foundational directors in show business. Right. You couldn't have gone through that experience and not have absorbed just impressive, creative, uh, stylistic moments. And, and he definitely brought that right. to the screen, as well as being an incredibly generous man. The thing, I learned so many basics and so many fundamentals of camera technique from him. And those are things that are important to know for an actor. Because when you know which side of you of your face photographs best, right. when you know how to follow your light, follow your camera, when you know how a gesture or a look plays on camera, you know how to utilize those things right. uh, to effectively tell the story, effectively and efficiently. And it gives directors more choices to cut to. And I learned those things from him. You you mentioned about Dennis Hopper, and a lot of people don't. You know, the only ones that know about Dennis Hopper are the ones that work with Dennis Hopper. And for you to be uh, to learn from him, and for it to be so early in your career, it's pr pretty much a good stepping stone for your career. Because as you said, as we said, you're known for that film. You know, mm -hmm. we're gonna move to '95. You go from Leatherface to a Leprechaun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Leprechaun 3 and 95. Now, a lot of people hate this movie. Of course, then again, a lot of people do hate sequels to begin with, but I've seen all of them. I'm a big Leprechaun fan. I think it's very creative. You know, Warwick Davis. Now, what was your experience like to be in a film like this, you know, knowing that you have a little small guy in a Leprechaun uniform that's terrorizing people. Well, what I learned about that little small guy was that he was a, a graduate of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, and his mm -hmm. very first film was for Ron Howard, Willow. Um, he was considered a very impressive talent in England, and his reputation had only begun to grow in America. The ironic thing was, at the time we were working on Lex, uh, my husband, who's a film marketing guy, was working on Apollo 13 for Ron Howard. So the Ron Howard experience was still very much a part of my world. Uh, I had read for that film and wasn't chosen for it. And, of course, my feelings were terribly hurt. Mm -hmm. And I felt like now I get to do Leprechaun 3. Oh, joy. While all my friends and my, hus my soon-to-be husband were all working on a prestige product, uh, product like Apollo 13. The thing that was interesting about Warwick is um, his discipline, his endurance, because he's layered under piles and piles of what essentially is plastic uh, without complaining, giving full voice all of his lines while his face is just completely, you know, encased in 
in latex. Right. The guy has an impressive physical in level of physical endurance. It was an athletic event for him. Yeah. And one of the more interesting moments, um, he there was a celebration of Ron Howard's birthday during production of Apollo 13. As a surprise, they had Warwick hide in the REM, which was the tiny little capsule that carried the, <laughs> carried the astronauts in the film. And as a surprise to Ron, they hid Warwick in that little thing and had him pop out like it was a cake. Um, so there was a little that little bit of cross pollination between the projects, uh, which is which is what Warwick was. You know, Warwick was our was our link in a way to that uh, to that project. One of the things that really stood out in my mind on Leprechaun number one was Brian Trenchard Smith, uh, an incredibly cultured, well educated man who has a wonderful taste for the absurd and is revered by Quentin Tarantino as one of the seminal um, directors of Down Under, you know, noir and, and grindhouse films, which is an odd, you know, marriage between this very upper crusty British guy and grindhouse. But uh, we were shooting at the Ambassador Hotel, which has been converted into something else, and, and significant portions of it were torn down. But uh, we were shooting at the Ambassador, which is, of course, where Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And right. uh, we went to the kitchen. X literally marked the spot. Someone carved an X into the floor of the kitchen where his head lay. So it's a, and it was a very strange experience to ride the elevators up to the upper floors and the elevator doors open. The light is on inside the elevator, but all else is utter blackness. It's just, and that was incredibly scary to be in that hotel. It was a mysterious, strange, but I had a terrific time on the film and uh, got to work a little comedy into, uh, a horror movie and that's always terrific because those are those are important moments mm -hmm. in horror it can't be just scare 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 you gotta have a moment to breathe and relax you, you know? stole me gold <laughs> you stole me gold <laughs> exactly now you got yourself involved in a uh, new spinoff of Mikey Myers now uh, Rob Zombie has uh, a lot of fans because of his music and that leads to fans of his films. You were in a film, Halloween 2, 2009. You mm -hmm. played Dr. Maple. Okay? Yeah, sure. Now, you went from a ultimate classic from 86, uh, Chainsaw Massacre 2. Then you went to a little guy named Leprechaun who, you steal me gold. And now you've gone <laughs> yeah. to the new version of Mikey Myers, 8 foot 5. No, not that tall. But, <laughs> but you went to a new spinoff of Halloween 2. Now, this is in 2009. Now, what was your experience like from going from the 80s to 90s? Now in 2009, it's pretty much of a rebirth for you as far as the horror genre again. What was it like to work for Rob Zombie and to be in a film like this that you know it's going to be either criticized or loved. Well, the thing about Rob that is great is he is a polarizing figure. Um, and part of it is because he's, he doesn't care what other people right. think, which is immediately gets people's hackles up. Um, and he refuses to conform to any previously um, established rules. And that was certainly true of the Halloween franchise. He, he showed respect for it by staying true to the storyline. 
but he did want to tell his own story as he saw it. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about his approach is that he he approached Haddonfield like um, the the town like Bedford Falls from um, It's a Wonderful Life. Right. And it, when we first meet Haddonfield in in uh, Rob's version, uh, it's a lovely, beautiful town with lovely, beautiful people where evil is introduced, and then. By the time you get to the sequel, it has become Pottersville. It has succumbed to the evil, and it's dominated by it. Such a bleak, dark landscape that he chose for that film, which is one of the things that made it uh, attractive, because uh, it, it, it provided a wonderful story continuity um, and, and a wonderful uh, um, world for the characters to, to uh, inhabit. I had been sort of, you know, career-wise from, I would say, 98 to 2006, I'd been busy with marriage and family life and raising kids and things like that. And while I had kept my hand in the business and I was doing projects on and off, I hadn't done a horror film in a long time. I hadn't worked very much in a long time. And uh, I'd, I'd acquired new management and stuff who had said, this is a perfect project for you to splash back out in the business and, and I said great let's do it and I my job was first shot first day literally the film kicked off with with my stuff so I was nervous and uh, I wanted to get it really right because the way the first day runs kind of sets the pace of the tempo when you have a good first day it just gives good karma you know to right. the, to the production and that was important to me um, one of the ironic things is is Rob uh, frequently used as his uh, DP, a guy named B.J. McDonald, and B.J. Mm-hmm. was shooting that day, shot all my footage that, that day, and uh, it was just a terrific experience. I got to work opposite Octavia Spencer, Oscar winner for the help, as my scene partner. Uh, she was quick, smart, funny, nice. We had a terrific time. Basically, we got to write our own scene. Um, Rob sent us into a room with a videographer, and he said, make up a conversation, something fun, and, and you know, the way people talk at work, and uh, it sets things up for Octavia to get killed, and that's what we did. We just started talking and had a great time, and Rob basically looked at the video and said, okay, start with this line, end with this line, give me a minute, and uh, make it a minute long, and you're good, and that was it. And we provided all the pre-coverage and all that kind of It was such a great time. He's a very cool guy. I've never met anybody like that before. You know, it can be intimidating a little bit. You know, he's, yeah. he's very much his own guy. He is not at all worried about what other people are going to think. He, he, he doesn't see the work day as, you know, he wants to get his shots. He wants to accomplish the work. He is so cooled out and calm and easy. I, it was wonderful. It's a great experience for you, as far as you mentioned about getting back into it again, and that is a good stepping stone, you know, yeah, to dip yourself yeah. back into the business again. You worked, this next film, you worked with uh, a good friend of mine. He's basically my best friend, Andrew Roth. Um, he ran oh. Abolition 2011. Yeah. Uh, I saw this way long ago, and I like Abolition, and then that's when I first, well, seen you in a character besides Halloween 2 as far as recently. What was your experience like working for Mike Clausen? Uh, Mike is one of those directors who, who needs bigger budgets. 
because yeah. story-wise, he thinks big. And he has a lot of subtext to his stories that require time for, for, for exposition and story. And uh, he's the kind of guy that hopefully will attract uh, gussier investors because he's the kind of guy whose ideas deserve a little more money and a little more time. I greatly enjoyed shooting in Canada. Loved the crew, cast. Uh, loved meeting Andrew. He's a man with this earnestness. He wears his sleeve, um, which can be tough. It can be cha- that can be challenging to an artist. Um, he's a lovely, lovely man. We had so much more in common than you would think on the surface. And uh, he brought such reality to our scenes. He's knowledgeable as well. And that's good because... You don't want, uh, particularly with younger actors who have yet to develop any kind of technique, who don't know much about production, who just want to get their emotions out there, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. um, that can make the work day very long and very challenging. I, I just felt like I had a lovely chemistry with Andrew, and I felt like our dynamic as mother and son was grounded in a real sense of reality. You know, there are certain experiences I've had in my life that... Uh, have informed my life going forward that Andrew has only begun to experience. It gave me it gave me a lot of insight into his character and, and, and his his uh, personality, and I think it gave him a sense of groundedness uh, in me as an authority figure of sorts. Right. Somebody who's ha- who somebody who has literally both in the in the story of abolition and in my own life who's been marked by experience and carries that experience going forward. And I think Andrew understood that well. And that's the foundation of our friendship today. We're still in touch with each other, and he has embarked on a whole new journey in his own life that uh, I pray he finds fulfilling and stays on, because uh, it can be a rocky road, but it's a good road. So, uh, And and many of us have gone there before, so... You know, keeping fingers crossed for Andrew. Yeah, me and my wife are in his in his corner. We've been uh, supporting him for. He's a phenomenal actor. I actually worked with him. I made my debut in 2012 in a film called Dakota. That's my first experience, you know, and uh, a good friend. So I love him to death, you know, and. Uh, and it's that quality of friendship that that anybody needs in life. But given the vagaries of show business and the difficulties that a creative life involves, yep. um, having a constancy of friendship like that is really, really important. Yep. Let's talk about a film that is also a third version, Hatchet 3 in 2013. Uh, my great gift yes. uh, from the wonderful Adam Green. Um, yeah, he, uh, strangely enough, I was doing a fan signing for a charity uh, February two years ago and I was sitting next to a lovely woman named Riley Vanderbilt and we were chatting and she said I said what does your husband do she said oh he's a filmmaker and I said oh I'm so sorry (laughs) (laughs) and she said she said oh no he works his name's Adam Green and I said you mean the same Adam Green who never hires me (laughs) (laughs) and within a month I had the call would you be interested in playing the role of Amanda Perlman in Hatchet 3? And Adam sent me the script, and, you know, he's such a vivid writer. He's very like Ellen Kit Carson. He's got a gift for dialogue. He's got a gift for the way people talk. 
that's fun and interesting and great. And he sent the script to me, and I was recovering from shoulder surgery. I'd had some arthroscopic surgery in my shoulder. And I was only, you know, it had only been a couple of days since the surgery. And I was so excited to read this script and to get this script that I leapt up. And I, and this is what I do when I get a good script. I walk around the house doing, saying the lines. I walk around the house playing yep. the role. And, uh, that's what I did. I saw it. I got so excited. It had the same personality to me as Chainsaw mm-hmm. 2. And it had such delicious humor. It brought back beloved characters. It had action. It was, it was fantastic. And then I found out BJ McDonald was going to be shooting it who was so impressive on, on Halloween, too. And that pretty much, that just totally clinched the whole deal for me. Wow. You know, then I, uh, and had a terrific time shooting. We were on location. We were in the swamp. BJ lit the swamp as though it were an interior studio. They were interior studio shots. It looked gorgeous. Just the look, feel of the film, the humor of the film. I, I, it was just a phenomenal experience. And it really relaunched uh, my career entirely i'll never forget going to the screening at the egyptian i had a guy uh, uh steve from dead central had said i've already seen a screener he said you're going to walk out of this theater you're going to float out on a cloud when you see this film and i did it was just an amazing and wonderful experience it was so rewarding you were phenomenal in there i loved your character in there well i have to tell you i felt like all the characters were so vivid even daniel oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. dimensions of her character, and to be able to work opposite somebody who's as strong and well-defined in her role as Danielle mm-hmm. uh, was incredibly satisfying because she is a very smart, quick, very tough gal, very professional. Um, I had reams and reams and reams of dialogue, and she only had the occasional, you know, punctuation point. And I never got a clean take all the way through. There were little stops and stutters along the way, but uh, uh, for the most part, it, it it certainly worked out very, very fine, and it's a very satisfying film. Hatchet Army loves the movie, and uh, I have to say, I was very happy with the quality of it. I look forward to a day, hopefully, that I'll be able to play opposite Tane for more than one shot, <laughs> uh, where, he'll actually, where he'll actually be able to talk to me. <laughs> Because what has gone unexplored with him is he is one of the funniest guys around. And he has got such a sharp sense of humor. And he's such a sweet guy and a very gentle soul for playing the brutal characters he plays. Yeah. Um, I, I look forward to the day when I'll actually get to to play an actual scene with him. That would be phenomenal. Right. Well, actually, I like Hatchet 3 better than 1 and 2, believe it or not. A lot of people have said that. Uh, but the beauty is, is Adam has talked about the possibility of linking the three films together as one epic hatchet narrative. Oh, wow. Um, as one long story, which I think would be so fun. It would be. That would be interesting. I think the fans would love it. Well, then... Ne- I'm sure they would. The next film I just saw mm, maybe two weeks ago. <laughs> it's called Contracted in 2013. Uh, directed yeah. by Eric England, And you played a mother... Of a young lesbian who gets drugged yeah. and raped, and uh, I to see your performance as a mom. Um, obviously, you are a mom, so you kind of use that 
experience in the role as a mom, an overbearing mom, a concerned mom, a sometimes judgmental mom, because you're not really understanding what's going on with her. But give your experiences working for Eric England and your experiences in this film. Eric is just an amazing young filmmaker. He 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 really has a wonderful gift. He just has a natural gift for uh, film direction. The story itself, I felt like, on the one hand, it's very linear, and it's, it's sort of what you would expect. But it's filled with so many unexpected character developments and the way the scenes unfold. You know, he took a lot of risks by labeling day one, labeled day three, and right. he's not confident enough to do that, and that's what I like about him. He's a very confident young filmmaker. Stylistically, the way he composes his shots, the way things are, things are uh, edited, uh, the style of music that he enjoys, as definitive as the music is. The photography, Mike Tesson's photography is incredibly beautiful, which is a wonderful juxtaposition between images of, wonder, uh, of incredible beauty with phenomenal violence and, and uh, horror. That's a wonderful new development, I think, yeah. that horror filmmakers are beginning to uh, explore. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be 16 millimeter uh, cartoon splashy colors, gritty, uh, gut, blood and guts all the time. You can actually come up with a much more romantic storyline in some ways to tell your story and still have all those horror elements um, come to life. So that was, that was one of the more interesting things as well. As far as the role, you know, the mom has her secrets, too. Mm-hmm. And those aren't exposed until later in the story. Right. And it, it's, it's, it's a mother-daughter tale, but it's also people struggling with their own um, addictions and, and degradations and difficulties right. and the power struggle that ensues from that. You know, whether you're a parent living with a child or a friend living with somebody who's struggling through something that you've also struggled through. Right. And there's a lot of psychology behind that. Right. And it makes Samantha's story even more tenuous and more of a tightrope to walk. What an ending. Uh, and what I mean to see what's great about the ending is he doesn't show you the ending. And right. that was, once again, another choice that few filmmakers would be willing to take that risk. Very few. Because the payoff at the end is what a lot of people live for in horror. And he didn't feel like he had to do it. Right. And that was a very Rob Zombie-like, I'm going to do what I want to do. Come with me Come with me. see if you can keep up. So um, <laughs> he's on his way. He's got his next film films lined up, and, and uh, he's just a young man of extraordinary gifts. And the young star of the film, Najara Townsend, yeah. as well as Katie Stegman, as well as Alice McDonald, Charlie Coons. Matt Mercer. Uh, uh, Matt Mercer, who is sort of the new Justin Long before Justin Long decided to start lifting weights all the time and stopped being Justin Long. You know, Matt Mercer has this wonderful, romantic, tender heart in the film, and you've got to have something like that Mm -hmm. that gives it a little more emotional weight. All around, just a terrific little film. And I was so pleased and so happy to be a part of it, you know. I'm trying to make creative and artistic choices and character choices and quality choices. Right. Instead of going from, okay, anybody who will pay me anything, I'll show up. <clears throat> I'm trying to avoid that trap because you end up leaving behind a long, long trail of, of sometimes a very poor quality projects that uh, 
Right. That don't enhance anybody's reputation. Right. All right. Well, we'll go to the next one. Um, I've heard about it. Obviously, not seen it. But Tales of Poe, directed by Bart oh. Masternardi and Alan Rowe Kelly. Yes. Um, Alan is somebody that I met at a convention. The second we met each other, we knew we would be friends forever. He's a he is a Renaissance man. Um, it doesn't hurt that he's exquisitely craft and dressed. But he's one of those guys who can do everything, literally everything. He hand-set costume for this wonderful little story called Beans that interweaves the tales of Poe together. It's the sort of a unifying story uh, that brings tales of Poe into a cohesive whole. And it's written by Michael Verratti, and it's a silent film, which is also very unusual in the horror genre. Bart is just an incredibly well-educated, very cultured young man. Uh, there goes those words again. Who <laughs> is also a very gutsy filmmaker. He's also a DP. And he understands the essential nature of movies is the image. Is the moving image is what you see on the screen. And um, he managed to bring together me, Amy Steele, and Adrian King because all three of us had seen Vindication and were just knocked out by it. By the story, by the characterizations, and by the risks that he took uh, in that film. He, he uh, One of the things that impressed me the most about Vindication is he's got a rock shot of a phenomenal actor named Jerry Murdoch who is browbeating his uh, son. He's brutalizing him verbally. The camera never moves and the actor never moves. But his voice and his eyes are burning with passion. And it's one of those scenes that just nails you to your seat. And I remembered watching it and going, I want to work with this guy. And I contacted him. Yeah. I spot I him out and said to him, you are a man of extravagant gifts. I want to work for you. And that's and then it, it took a while, but, uh, but it's now managed to come together. And, and for next June, I think it's going to be a very powerful release. But once again, the production quality... We ran around stealing shots. We didn't have shooting permits, but we shot at some of the most exotic and beautiful locations that you will ever see in a very low-budget film. And like Contracted, and like uh, some of the other films that I've appeared in, this film has virtually no budget, and yet the taste of the filmmaker is evident throughout because uh, every story within Tales of Poe uh, uh, Cask of Amontillado and the Telltale Heart. He managed to find shooting locations and they managed to create sets and atmosphere that no, that I haven't seen in another low-budget film. Hmm. Um, just a phenomenal level of taste and artistry that adds so much to those films. Um, it's just going to be a visual treat and right. a storytelling treat, and yeah. I, I'm so excited about it. Yeah, I'm anxious to see it, really am. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. Bart's on his way. Yeah. He's on his way. Well, you worked in a film, um, Seed to the New Breed. Yeah. Marcel Walls. Um, yeah. I didn't mention this to you, but I'm good friends with Matt Mercer and Natalie Sheets from the film Madison County, which is Eric England's first film. So I've talked yes, to all these. 
Yep. Um, and Krista Campbell is another amazing actress along with yourself. And, of course, Nick Principe played the killer in Madison County. So yeah. your experience... Now, see, I'm seeing Seed. Seed 2 looks like a film that's really going to put Caroline Williams back into this new age of films. You played the mother of a family of killers. Am I correct? I am the mother of a family of killers. It introduces my character in Seed 2, which sets up Seed 3, which hopefully will start shooting in the summer. Um, Marcel is a protege of Uza Bowl. And people love to dismiss Uva as just a guy who blows up, blows up Dolph Lundgren. Uh, in truth, he's a fabulous storyteller, and he's moving in different directions as well. Far more psychological, subversive directions than people would expect from him. I did a, a short film uh, as part of the anthology film series called The Profane Exhibition. I did a short film with Tara Cardinal and Clint Howard called yes. Faithment. Okay. And it is it is such a departure from what Uva does. Uh, it's going to make news simply because it does that. But Marcel has long worked with and been a, a devotee of Uva's. And uh, when Uva wanted to pass the football off to uh, a seed of the seed, he chose Marcel. He couldn't have chosen better. So he's incredibly enthusiastic, very colorful. Love right. the story. The character and the love characters is very evident. It's just a button twisted mode. And um, like I said, he C2 is the launching pad for C3, which um, hopefully will begin shooting in uh, in the summer. Another couple, Christy Carroll, had a whole new career for herself as a uh, film producer. And um, she's one of the more uh, clearly intelligent, ambitious, and very mature talents out there. She's one of those girls that can do anything. And uh, she took some, some heavy fire, she and Lottie Grotman, for uh, the Chainsaw 3D interview that they did when they were simply talking about their experience being producers on that film. You know, nobody expected Chainsaw 3D to have the incredible success that it had. Right. And uh, subsequently, nobody really wanted to share it in the in the cut of that, but she was instrumental in making sure that that film got off the ground. And I think she is very pretty. And because uh, she's been a pretty girl in so many films, people wanted to dismiss her as just some girl uh, who made some opportune connections. Um, she did make opportune connections, but she did it because she was smart and she knew how to do the job. Right. And she is proving that going forward with that hotel's new film, The Kink, that Ryan Singer was so important in getting going. And I got to read for that film, got to read for a couple of roles in the film. And she's an exciting new producer. She's going to be doing amazing things in the future. Not just acting. Um, uh, but Seed is a man of fun. Seed 3, I believe, is probably going to be even better. Okay. To the truth. Hmm. Yeah. Marsha has incredible uh, um, ideas. He loves storytelling experience. And like I said, he has an incredible passion for the characters and knows them well. Right. So uh, the audience is in for a really big treat. With C2. I like one. That was wicked. It's, it's very grindhouse. Mm-hmm. It's very grindhouse. Yeah. Sweet. This C2 is going to bring, uh, it brings a much rounder sophistication to the film. And, um, and who knows what he has in store for C3, but I know it's going to be good because he's that kind of filmmaker. He's very exciting. 
think nice. it's going to be fun. Now, is there anything else that you have going on that you're allowed to talk about that's not listed? I don't think so. I have recently hooked up with a new manager, Matt Jaffin. Uh He is a just an absolute workhorse of a guy. He is a powerhouse of ideas and connections. Mm-hmm. And he's got a lot of people that he's going to be introducing me to in the next few months. Um, so we're going to be rounding out my my management agency thing uh, to really push forward and and bring me more fully into 2014. I'm looking forward to a lot of really good projects. We've been approached on a great many things. Um, we're in the luxurious position right now of having some choices, and uh, and we're going to choose um, the stories and the directors that are going to be best for me. Um, I'm, I'm just feeling very, very creatively juiced. I, I just feel very ready uh, to find exciting new characterizations. I, I want to move more into uh, evil characters and bad bad girl characters, bad guy characters. Right. And right. I want to play the power a little more. Uh, things that would be more traditionally male characters, sheriffs and detectives and doctors and psychologists and things like that and researchers, I'd like to play those roles. I think that's something that I can pull off at my age. And so I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, we've got a lot in store for 2014. It's, it's going to be a very, very exciting year. So I look forward to doing this again. Just, just one thing. For the record, I would rather listen to you talk than me talk. <laughs> <laughs> I talk a lot. <laughs> well, well, the thing is, your your stories and your information are, is very powerful, and it's really great to hear. But uh, rumor has it that you might be coming to the Fantastic Horror Film Festival in San Diego next October. And <laughs> well, we would like to have you. And I know I know that Matt may have said something about it to you, but um, we're looking forward to seeing as many celebrities there as we can possibly get and we like I said we would really love that you would come well listen if I'm not in front of the camera I hope to be in San Diego I love that town and um, I've heard wonderful things about the film festival and if I can be there I fully intend to be that's great (laughs) the website is www.fhffsd.org for all the listeners filmmakers if you got films that you want to submit at a distro deal or there's a there's a, uh, a catchy situation too we can work out, but definitely feel free to submit your film. Caroline, it was great having you on. Um, Thank you. Uh, you are phenomenal. Um, we love you to death, <laughs> and uh, so definitely we'll talk again. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Cheers to a uh, very merry Christmas and a very uh, prosperous and busy 2014. Same to you, Caroline. Thank you. Definitely. You bet. Have a great one. We'll talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye.